Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. The current season is focused on the French Revolution, and despite being some 60 episodes in, we're only just starting the infamous Reign of Terror. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, presented in a similar style to the history of Byzantium, check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. That's G-R-E-Y. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 274. The Ten Worst Emperors, with Anthony Caldellis. Back by popular demand, Professor Caldellis is here to give us his ten worst emperors. Can you believe the generosity of this man to come back and indulge us in more subjective frivolity? Uh, We will also talk about the nature of bad emperors and why there was no Byzantine Caligula. So there is very serious analysis behind the fun. Just in case you're randomly sampling this podcast for the first time, Professor Caldellis works at the Department of Classics at the University of Chicago. He's written several books on vital topics for understanding Byzantine history and has a forthcoming Complete History of Byzantium coming out later this year, which we will be talking to him about nearer the time. We covered the 10 best emperors in episode 265 of this podcast. One note for those with sensitive ears, there is one word of profanity in this uh, interview, uh, but you'll get a moment's warning before it comes. Apart from that, it's all good, clean stuff. I'll be back at the end to do some housekeeping, but for now, here's the interview. Professor Anthony Caldellis, welcome back again to the History of Byzantium podcast. Thank you for having me here, Robin. So we're going to be trash-talking some emperors today, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, Professor Caldellis is incredibly generous to us here on the podcast by agreeing to come back and uh, have another frivolous exercise uh, of fun. Uh, and he, again, is the man best place to do this because he has just completed a new history of Byzantium. And we will be talking to him again on more serious topics in uh, a few months' time. Um so I'm going to ask you to do uh, again what, what we did with the 10 best emperors, which is you define your criteria and uh, and then take us from 10 to 1. So over to you. We'll do that. Uh, now, before we do that, mm. I should say that talking about bad emperors is somewhat different than talking about good ones. And I don't mean that just the difference between good and bad. I mean that in terms of how historians approach the past. It is much easier 
to make the case that someone actually was a good emperor, this is a rehabilitation, than the reverse. That's just the climate of scholarship today, right? And this is especially the case with Byzantium, which is a civilization that has been undergoing a very long rehabilitation. And in a certain sense, this is kind of what we're all trying to do, is move it out of that enlightenment picture, right, of a sort of decadent, exotic, mysterious decline and fall kind of state to what it was. And actually, your project is probably one of the biggest, just in terms of, you know, popular appeal, biggest rehabilitations of Byzantium, um, even if you were just normalizing it, which is important by itself, right? Even if you're just doing that. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to ask you first, like how you feel about the kind of embeddedness of rehabilitation in our project, while also talking about you know, periods of decline, you know, dysfunctions and bad emperors, because those come up. Now, let me tell you that at conferences, I sometimes like will get called out. Like, why are you calling that? Like, let's say late 12th century. Why are you calling that a period of de decline? Like, we shouldn't be using that word because it's been used against our field and et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, I understand the concern, but like, okay, come on. So anyway, so I kind of wonder, you know, like, is there a kind of perpetual rehabilitation machine that will, in the end, make everything look good? Or is like, under what circumstances are we allowed to talk about things as being bad? As I kind of wonder if you have a kind of rule of thumb about this. A really interesting question. And I don't I don't often think about what I do in in terms of the wider field or whatever. I mean, I, I definitely see my role as um, more like entertainment than academia um, because I'm not, I'm not usually coming up with insights of my own. I'm, I'm reporting on the work of academics. And uh, it's interesting because obviously in a lot of your work, you will respond to, what the previous generation or even the generation before that of academics have established mm. that sort of bled out into the wider world as common knowledge. And I I sort of react against what you find on YouTube videos or Wikipedia summaries that has bled into the culture. So so I am to some extent doing a little bit of that where you're you're trying to explain things. But um <sighs> Yeah, my I, I suppose in general it's impossible to escape, isn't it? That there is a kind of John Julius Norwich version of Byzantine history that a lot of listeners do know that is received wisdom, and I do end up pushing back against that. And my own my own sense is always kind of battling between things that could have made a difference and things that couldn't have made a difference you know if an emperor is executes the previous regime and then carries on ruling more or less as they did before i will tend to say that reputation for cruelty is a reaction from the time from the people who took over after him it's not really relevant to how he governed mm. whereas i think there are some emperors who genuinely changed the the nature of how things were functioning in a way that then has long-term consequences but yeah it's it's I have no problem making moral judgments because I feel what I'm doing is less serious. Um, oh, 
Okay. Wow. That all opens mm -hmm. up a whole other discussion that we can have, um, mm -hmm. because in a certain sense, moral judgments, I think, are the most serious thing, <laughs> right? And, you know, look at how it, yeah, it, contemporary politics anywhere, like it's impossible to not have a moral response to some of the things that are going on. And we 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 take it for granted that we're authorized and in fact, even required to uh, react in moral terms to things that are happening. And yet somehow as scholars, we're supposed to be completely neutral and like, no, no, no. Um, and I, I'm not entirely convinced that that distinction is appropriate. But anyway, it's, it's interesting that you would mention entertainment because I imagine that that might actually create a temptation to lean in mm -hmm. to the kind of atrocity stories and wild reports and things like that, which like I did in the cabinet of curiosities book, just, mm. just for fun, exactly. As you said, for fun, because if we can't have fun with this stuff too, like what's the point anyway? Um, all right. Um, so I'm going to kind of frame this discussion with uh, two quotations. Um, the first is in a book on the it's from a book on the Hittites. This is Trevor Bryce, uh, Life and Society in the Hittite World. There was a time when I was like, I did a deep dive into Hittites, and he oddly uses a lot of Byzantine references in talking about the Hittites, like born in the purple and things like this. And there's this one passage where he says, and I quote, the succession of grotesque monsters who occupied the throne of Byzantium. <laughs> And he says the Hittites weren't like that at all. They most of their emperors are pretty decent people. And I thought, well, a number of expletives came into my mind, and and, and I wrote to him and I said, <laughs> like, which ones do you have in mind? Because I can't think I can think of some grotesque monsters, but not a succession of them. Um, and he never responded. Okay, so my view of most of these emperors, and we have like what a hundred of them or something, is that they were all pretty hardworking, um, generally sincerely trying to do what was good for their subjects. Um, a, a, the majority of them could have had much easier lives as emperors if they did less and they tried to do more. And that's true about most of them. Um, now, on the other hand, we have, you know, Garrison Keillor's um, Lake Wobegon, where all of the children are above average. Right. Okay. So we have situations where if you look at any individual emperor, you're always trying to see things as he or she did and kind of make the best case. And this is the this kind of ingrained rehabilitation project that we're all engaged in. Um, yeah, like letters of recommendation. <laughs> letters in letters of recommendation, all the students are way at the top of their class. <laughs> all right, so that's how it's kind of a function of the genre. In other words, is to make everybody look good. Okay, so obviously reality is somewhere in between, and you know, no one would. Uh, agree that like all of their bosses have been fine, upstanding, efficient, you know, managers that uh, like, no, that all presidents in the U.S. have been good. But no. So we've got some real, um, real nasty people uh, here. Um, and so, w w you know, let, let's go through them. Now, the standard 
is roughly the same as that which I used for the good emperors. Um, and so I'm going to be prioritizing people who really did harm to the polity through their actions or inactions, uh, whether through policy or just incompetence. So I'm not terribly concerned about people who might have been dumb, and there were some, or just cruel, if it didn't really affect things too much. Um, so there are there are a couple of well, normally lists have honorable mentions. So this is going to be dishonorable mentions. <laughs> I'm just going to mention these quickly and get them out of the way um, because people might expect them to be on the list, but there are reasons why I didn't put them and and here's briefly why. So one is uh, Valens. Um, this is the emperor who in the fourth century lost the Battle of Adrianople. Um, tip of the hat to Noel Lenski, who wrote an excellent book on Valens and rehabilitated him. I was very persuaded by it. The Battle of Adrianople, while completely disastrous, is like this one moment where he made a bad decision that a lot of people could have made that decision. Um, he was generally um, not a, he was not a admirable person in any way. He had no extraordinary qualities, but he did his job pretty conscientiously. And even as a military leader, he was okay until that point. So that's just one bad decision that I wouldn't want to put him on a list because of that, despite the chaos that it created. Um, a couple of others are pretty much the same um, that, that is with each other. And these are Irene, mm -hmm. right? The first one who restored the icons and Justinian II. Mm -hmm. And they're similar in the following ways. They both seem to have been unusually cruel individuals. Um, Irene famously blinded, you know, her son leading to his death eventually and had all kinds of other people like whipped and executed, including women. It was like incredibly cruel. Um, Justinian, lots of stories about him doing that. And they both um, kind of failed in a lot of their major policies. Like they, they had major policies, uh, especially territorially, um, and they didn't work out. Um, Irene's in particular were a bunch of failures. Now, having said that, and for these reasons, both of them were deposed, actually three times between the two of them, right? But I don't think that they caused any real lasting damage. And that's not the only criterion here. I think they both had you know, good organizational qualities and they had plans that like look good. They just didn't work out because battles were lost, like things mm. like that. And, you know, battles, uh, you know, there's a kind of roll of the dice situation there. Um, so I think that had some of the outcomes there been better, they would have been remembered, you know, much, much better than they were. So I was reluctant to put them on there. Um, can I can I jump in at that point? Yes, because I've made my I've made a shortlist, so I'm I'm just ticking them off. And um, what I like about that is is I think you're making a judgment on valence there that ba battle is a chancy affair, as as sort of comes up in Byzantine history. And so yeah. perhaps there is a difference between him and and other emperors who who face similar disasters. That we're saying ultimately it was a bad decision, but it wasn't. He didn't foolhardily march into a 10 to 1 
no. against him situation. Similarly no, with Irene, no. I was thinking of her when I said I take, because I think of the podcast as less serious, I said killing your own child is inexcusable. That there isn't, a, to me, there isn't a political rationale for that um, because we don't get the sense that her son was going to destroy Constantinople or something where she had to act against him. So, but but again, as you said, that doesn't really make a huge difference to the rest of her reign or or the the, the governing of the empire. So I, I yeah, and Justinian the second same, you know, I mean if Justinian the second had invited the Bulgars to sack the city to right. get him back on the throne, then we would be saying, well, that's a, an action of selfishness that damages the the state. So anyway, yeah. I just thought those were interesting examples. Right. And, you know, we don't know what Constantine the Sixth was really like. Maybe no. he deserved it. Um, but also, you can see in the church councils that they organized, uh, this is both Justinian II and Irene, that they actually had a, you know, what today politicians would call a vision. Um, and it's not insignificant. I mean, I, I, I think it reveals, uh, you know, leadership capacity that they need to be recognized for. So anyway, so there we are. All right. So shall we dive into it then? Yes. Who is number 10? All right. So number 10 is Michael the fifth. Okay. Let's remind people. So this is, um, yes, the, this is the post battle, the second period where Zoe is marrying one person after another. And this is the nephew of, Michael this the is the nephew of Michael the Fourth, yeah. whom Zoe adopts yeah. uh, in order for there to be a succession. Now, Zoe had married Michael the Fourth, who comes from this nobody family in Paphlagonia. Uh, Michael the because he was very good looking, which I guess counts. Um, we're going to come across some other very good looking people. <laughs> All right, and. Michael IV actually turned out to be pretty competent, and so was the rest of his family, except for this guy. Um, And this guy, again, we shouldn't spend too much time on because he also didn't do too much harm. He was so incompetent that he got himself, as it were, voted out of office very within months uh, because he basically did every self-destructive thing you can imagine to undermine your own regime. Um, you know, he owed his position entirely to his uncles, um, Michael IV and all of his brothers, whom he then immediately proceeded to castrate, um, and to Zoe, whom he immediately proceeded to expel from the palace, angering the people of the city who rose up and did away with him. Um, they they blinded him. Um, so this is just a self-destructive idiot. And I can see no redeeming qualities in him. Like it doesn't seem that he had a plan to do anything. Uh, it wouldn't have had enough time to implement it if he did. Um, one can say that he kind of destabilized the political scene, you know, by doing what he did, by getting the people to rise up. He kind of unleashed a force that then came back to trouble uh, you know, Constantinopolitan politics for some time. And, you know, I'm not one who will, you know, deny that, pe- that the people of Constantinople should play a, a, a role here, but getting them worked up about something like this, like you just resentment against Zoe, you want to exile her from the palace. Like, what that's what's that about? She's a perfectly harmless person, Zoe. And anyway, uh, so this guy makes it onto the list just for being an incompetent idiot and good, good that they got rid of him quickly. 
and he he was one of the examples in the Byzantine Republic of sort of how the political system actually works. That yeah, he he's clearly taking the position that well, I'm emperor, you must do what I say, and if you alienate all the other constituents in the polity, you find yeah. out quickly that you can't do that. So exactly, yeah, yeah you have to keep as many people friendly to you as possible. Um, and what with their the family's lack of any kind of, you know, pedigree or, you know, uh, history in politics, um, that he had no natural allies. Anyway. All right. Should we move on to number nine? Yes. This is one that possibly you and your audience will not expect. Hmm. This is Justin the first. Okay. Interesting. All right. So uncle of Justinian. Um, so the, the, and the person who gave us Justinian. And that's not why he's on the list. <laughs> All right. Um, why is just so this is um, he ruled from 518 to 529. He was old at that time, had a military career. Procopius says he was illiterate. Um, don't care about any of that. Procopius also says that Justin was just kind of there. Um, and that he says specifically, he did neither any good nor any harm to the polity of the Romans. I think Procopius is wrong here. Um, and part of the reason he's wrong is because he's not talking about ecclesiastical history. And I think that Justin was a disaster of an emperor specifically because he um, exacerbated the ecclesiastical schism, you know, between those who accepted Chalce the Council of Chalcedon and those who didn't and did so in a brutal way. So just to give a sense of the context here, his predecessor, Anastasius, who um, your reader, your audience will recall was kind of at the top of our list, toward the top of our list of the best emperors, had managed to keep the peace somewhat uh, in the church between the um, supporters and the opponents of the Council of Chalcedon. Though the balance was beginning to tip toward the anti-Chalcedonians uh, toward the end, because at that time they really were more dynamic. And Justin comes along and he's a hardcore Chalcedonian. And not just that, for some reason, possibly because his family was Latin speaking from the Western Balkans, he wanted to placate Rome. And Rome's position was, it's not enough for bishops in the East to agree with Chalcedon, which Rome thought was their thing because of Pope Leo's tome, which got read into the Acts of Chalcedon as doctrine. Not only do you have to agree with Chalcedon, but you have to have agreed with Rome all along about which bishops to not recognize in the East. So if Constantinople recognizes Chalcedon, but has diplomatic meetings uh, or relations with bishops of Alexandria and Antioch who don't like Chalcedon and Rome says they're bad, you also have to say they're bad and break off relations with them. So Rome is taking this maximalist stance on following its line. And Justin does exactly that. And he unleashes a persecution uh, in the East, which targets not only people who don't accept Chalcedon, but everyone who, don't, who doesn't um, sign a document that was written in Rome about their like subordination to the Roman position and remove from their local churches diptychs like the commemorations any bishops 
who had been seen as deviant from this regard. And this just created chaos. Um, it was so bad, like whole communities were uprooted, monasteries were closed, there's torture. Um, there's all kinds of gross stuff going on, like having lepers roll around in these people's beds, to, like this kind of thing. And it it drives this wedge into the church, this fragile balance that Anastasius had created was destroyed. And no one was able to put it back together again. Justinian tried. He tried afterwards. He, uh, he tried persecution. He tried dialogue. He tried flattery. He tried bribery. He tried everything. It failed. And Justin, with the help of the young Justinian at the time, was the one who destroyed it. Um, and so, he, and, and it got so bad that even Justin had to pull back a little bit afterwards and like tell the Pope, eh, I can't do all of these things that you want. I've tried. Anyway, so for splitting the church apart and creating this terrible division, Justin gets put on the list. Yeah, very good. I think um, this was all like at the beginning of the podcast. So for some listeners, 10 years ago, but when they read your book, it will become much clearer because sort of the past century, emperors had been trying to keep the peace and find a middle ground and in various ways. Mm. And I had forgotten how, how much that, um, how much Justin's actions were divisive. I mean, do you think it's possible that if Anastasius had had a more competent nephew or, you know, what have you, there would have been a, a new ecumenical council that would sort of have lent more monophysite, if that's the right term, you know, more uh, appeasing those Eastern churches and that's the direction things would have moved in? So I don't think that an ecumenical council would have resolved these problems necessarily because ecumenical councils are by themselves kind of divisive events. Mm. That is, they they tended to have to produce winners and losers, mm. and that's not the best way to resolve issues. What I think would have resolved the issues is more time passing. That is mm. kind of because the conflict was driven not so much by theological you know, differences. It was actually driven more by narratives that is stories about, you know, your community did this to our to this guy yeah. on our side. And no, but you did this to our guy. And no, we're martyrs. No, we're martyrs. And I think they needed time for these kinds of things to just die out so right. that, you know, a, a generational a generation of quiet. Mm. And then you can find some kind of formula because it, during the sixth century, they actually often did manage to find a formula that they could agree on, but they couldn't then see past the narratives. Mm. And and Justin just, you know, gave them more narratives and made it yeah. worse. Um, so that's what I think would have helped. And um, we, we're going to talk a lot more about that in uh, a month's time or whatever you when we talk about the book. So that but that is a preview of a very, very interesting aspect of the book that, uh, and the history of Byzantium that I have not adequately covered on the podcast. So we'll yeah. leave that there. Um, <laughs> who is at number eight? Okay. Uh, number eight is the opposite of Justin in the sense that it's someone that everyone is expecting to appear on this list, and that is focus. Okay. Uh, so 602 to 610. Um, and so this is the first successful military usurper in the Eastern Empire, like since, well, since Constantine. Mm -hmm. And he overthrew um, Mavrikios or Maurice. And it 
it created real problems, especially with Persia. So this is um, the overthrow of Maurice gave the Persian Shah the kind of pretext to invade and start conquering the Eastern provinces. Focus is also uh, um, sort of his memory is tarnished in the sources that came later, that was written later as kind of a bloodthirsty tyrant. Um, and much of his reign, he was bogged down in the civil war with Heraclius, which is a very destructive civil war that in particular destroyed Egypt, one of the few places of the empire that had not yet been ravaged by war. Uh, so his reign was pretty bad. Um, now, here's why he's so low on the list. And uh, tip of the hat here to um, David Olster, who wrote a book, not rehabilitating focus, but putting a lot of this into perspective. So, um, the negative tradition about focus is clearly a piece of propaganda by Heraclius and his successors. And sometimes you can just catch them in the act, like they're taking one event, splitting it up into pieces and distributing them across years so that it looks like focus is executing people left and right, whereas it was just one big conspiracy against him, a real conspiracy, and he put it down in the usual bloodthirsty way of suspicious, paranoid, you know, emperors. Okay, he wasn't alone in that. Um, Focus also can't reasonably be blamed for how Kusro II responded to the... Like, that was such a weird response anyway. Um, and it had to do with the systemic insecurities of the Persian regime. Kusro himself was in a very, very weak situation, and he used the Roman war to, you know, consolidate his his uh, command of the armies and the aristocracy. I don't think any Roman could have seen that, especially not like a centurion or whatever he was on, on the Danube. Uh, actually, I think recently I read that this business about him being a centurion is, um, is probably part of the propaganda that mm. focus was probably a much higher ranked officer with better education and so forth. Um, and which you can see in some of the actions that he, like he knows how to do stuff. Mm that just a common soldier wouldn't have. So that is probably also a little bit of a propaganda. Um, anyway, however, he does not seem to have been a very good emperor or a good politician. He did lose ground to the Persians. Um, his regime was disruptive enough that it, it instigated or induced this revolt by the Heraclii. And that was a very destructive war. His lieutenants were very you know, um, destructive themselves and how they try to put it down. Uh, so overall, you know, this is a this is a bad emperor who who did some real damage. Um, I think e even if he can't necessarily be blamed for it all. So there you have it. Yeah, uh, even in my very basic knowledge of the subject, when I got to focus, I understood that if you're someone who has no contacts at the capital, let's say you are going to execute everyone in a conspiracy because if you're if you're Zimisky's taking over from Focus and you know everyone and you know who's the threat and who isn't, you can say, oh, I'm going to be kind and, and let someone go because I know what they're capable of. If you don't know anyone, you're going to say, kill everybody because I don't know who I can trust and who's going to try this again. And so, exactly. yeah. You're exactly, that, that's, that's the, that is an excellent comparison. Yeah. Um, and Zimisky's can afford to be diplomatic 
and conciliatory because he knows how the whole system works. He knows all these people and they know him. Yeah. Uh, but outsiders are much more insecure. Um, anyway. Absolutely. So that's focus. who is number seven? Number seven. This is Constantine the Tenth Zukas. Yes. Okay. Now, I, I will admit that I have possibly put him higher on the list um, than I might otherwise have because I have paid a lot of attention to this period, and I think he's kind of like this mystery black box, his reign that gets us from, you know the Roman Empire in the 11th century kind of holding its own against all of these various threats that are coming at it, Normans, Seljuks, uh, Pechenegs, yeah, kind of having a handle on it to just falling apart. Can I, and, can I remind the listeners where we are? Yes. Uh, just for the, those who've forgotten. So uh, after Constantine Monomachos, who is Zoe's last choice for the throne, and as you say, the, the problems are now appearing. Pechenegg War, Seljuk incursions, and so on. Uh, Isaac Komnenos, is that right, takes over? Have I got the name? I forget which Komnenos takes over. Um, well, there's, so yeah. first it's Theodora, Zoe's sister yes, for a while. Then, then it's, uh, yes, then it's uh, Isaac Komnenos, Isaac I Komnenos uh, right. for a couple of years. He's a military emperor. Uh -huh. he, he marches around. You know, that the armies seem to be doing their job. Um, and, and in those years, 1057 to 1059, you don't really get people like freaking out. Yeah. And then, um, you have, you know, he is kind of weirdly persuaded to retire somehow. It's a weird story. Anyway, mm -hmm. we don't need to get it. And he, or someone, you know, around or behind him, Salas wants us to think that it was Salas. Um, handpicks Constantine X or Constantine Dukas to succeed him. And the, the transition is is, is peaceful. Um, now, this Constantine claims at one point, this is in a Georgian saint's life, that he had a military background. But I could find no record of his military um, career anywhere. I, I, I don't know what he did or thought he did, um, but he certainly didn't have a distinguished military career because none of it appears. And the major fault of this guy is that he prioritized his political survival in Constantinople over the armies at a time when he really needed to be spending money on the armies. Instead, their sources are pretty consistent that he cut back on military spending um, and so there was a loss of a lot of elite units and um, other units weren't uh, equipped you know, properly and so forth in order to use that money to make everyone around him in the capital happy by, you know, paying their salaries uh, fully because there had been some cutbacks because there were some budget deficits. So there had been some austerity under Isaac I. And he reverses that and starts paying everybody out because he freaked out at this major conspiracy against him um, in the first few years of his reign, which one which actually involved a very funny plot. They were 
someone was going to cause a commotion at a shrine when the emperor was scheduled to go and you know pay his respects to a saint somewhere near Constantinople and go on the imperial barge. And they were going to cause a commotion. They're like, oh, there's a plot. There's a whatever. There's an ambush. And the emperor would rush down to the docks and get onto a boat um, that the conspirators had arranged would then just dump him in the sea. <laughs> but he got on the wrong boat. <laughs> and he said, okay, take me to the palace. And meanwhile, the, the boat with the conspirators came up and said, no, come on to our boat. And he's like, no, I'm going to get onto your boat. And said, anyway, <laughs> and, and then anyway, the whole thing unraveled and there's this big conspiracy. And he, he didn't want to punish people you know, by executing them because he wanted to be a kind of mild and merciful emperor because he was, you know, anyway, he was pious and all of that. But he freaked out and he thought, oh, wait, these people really don't like me or I'm weak or I'm vulnerable. So I'm just going to pay them to be happy. And he did. And they were. But meanwhile, things collapsed. So um, this is when the Seljuks take Ani, which was a, an Armenian possession in the east. And as far as I can tell, he did not even send a response army. It, you know, he had been persuaded by a local, um, by a notable there, like, look, I'll handle the defenses of the place and you don't even have to pay me. I'll just milk the province, like typical outsourcing. And, you know, he failed and Constantine didn't even respond. Like, why? You have major armies, use them. Anyway, and so at the end of his reign, when Romanos Leoyenis comes along you know, after a while, um, he has to, you know, get the armies back into shape uh, in order to wage these wars against the Turks. So I think that this, this is a period when the army really loses a lot of operational capability and the the defenses along the frontiers begin to decay. And so you know, I'm going to blame him for that. I, and sort of narratively, it seems odd because Isaac is presented as representing the military in sort of saying yeah. we're tired of inadequate civilian rule. Exactly. And you would think he would nominate someone who was equally vigorous or competent. And I think you said at the time that there is a, this is in classic Byzantine fashion where we have a gap in the sources. We don't, we don't yep. know enough to know exactly what was going on. Yep. So the the way I put it was, if I could have the budget sheets of any emperor of all of them, it would be this guy's. Mm. Just to see what he was doing. Yeah. And so we don't, we just don't know what the armies of the East were thinking about early Seljuk raids. Yeah. Like we know a lot of their responses, but were they thinking, well, this is the new paradigm. We're going to have to, chase these people around the edge of the plateau and or they try and ambush them or whatever or if they were getting mixed signals or about how much effort they were meant to put in or what have you we're sort of left in the dark yeah okay um are we down to number six okay number six number six is andronikos the first komnenos okay so it would be would be higher on my list i imagine i, I yeah. Um, so let me explain why I put him here. So this is the cousin of Manuel I, Komnenos, so 12th century. And when Manuel dies in 1180, he leaves an underage heir and son, Alexius II. And to make a long, complicated story short, Andronicus I, Komnenos, who is an old man by this point, well, older, um, 
he maneuvers his forces and allies, stages a series of coups, marches on the capital, instigates some some riots and and massacres, and eventually becomes the protector of this um, young heir. Eventually, blinds and murders him, and disposes of the body, and kind of usurps the throne. Um, now, uh, where to even begin with this guy? So, in his previous life, so before he did all of this stuff, he was um, a notorious um, member of the Komnenian aristocracy, after the emperor, probably the most famous person on the scene, in part because he was extraordinarily good looking and charismatic. He was a seducer of many, many married women, right? So notorious affairs, um, had was troublemaker, had gotten, had, you know, really botched some of Manuel's schemes, had to flee the empire at times, wandered around the Near East and Turkish Asia Minor, just making contacts and friends, like an adventurer, right? Like you could really write the Netflix series about this guy's life, right? And and yet for all of his undeniable charm and, and abilities, like dramatic escapes and things like that, he was pretty bad as a general and an organizer. Like he just kept losing battles when he was, um, you know, appointed to, you know, uh, take care of some problem situation on the frontier. Um, and so it seems like his skills were like the wrong ones. He was he was a charmer. Like he could really get people on his side. Um, and he had certainly he had this kind of deep resentment against Manuel and wanted to kind of tear Manuel's whole system apart, um, even though he had, while at the same time, he had a kind of very strict sense of justice. Um, and so he wanted the imperial bureaucracy to work um, efficiently and fairly. Okay, so let's get to what, what exactly he did. Um, so the major fault with Andronicus is that he tore Manuel's system apart. He like disassembled this very intricate and carefully built system of alliances and personal connections that kept the Roman polity in a kind of equilibrium with its neighbors in, in, in which it could still pretend or even actually sometimes be the dominant partner. But this was something that required a lot of investment in diplomacy and you know, occasional military action. It was a very carefully calibrated balance. Um, and Andronicus just ruined it. And so it's it's no wonder that the system just begins to fall into pieces beginning during his reign, which is very brief, 1183 to 1185, but certainly afterwards, it just collapsed. Um, he also terribly exacerbated the tensions with the Latins because one of his pitches when he was marching on Constantinople um, was to persuade the population of the city that the Latins in the city were secretly scheming to become the powers behind the throne because the regency of Alexius II that he was trying to undermine had a Latin member and it was like there were Latins in it and behind it and whatever. And he whipped up the people of Constantinople into this 
bloody frenzy and they murdered thousands of Latins resident in the city. Not Venetians, because Manuel had expelled those already, <laughs> but all of the others. And this event was so traumatizing for many people in the West that both Andronicus, but also kind of the Romans and the, the Greeks in general were, you know, began to be seen with, with hatred and hostility, uh, whereas Manuel had, you know, somehow managed to charm and appease them and, you know, throw money at them and whatever. So that was terrible. Andronicus also had a paranoid punitive re regime. So lots of blindings and amputations and things like that. Um, so he just created terror um, and, you know, even imagined collective punishment, right? Just to keep everybody in line, right? So he threatened, I don't think he did this, but he threatened that like if a member of a family did came after him or conspired that he would kill them all and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, in a certain sense, he was a kind of grotesque monster, especially when you think that, so he's someone in his like 60s and he marries the French child bride that had been brought for, for Alexius II. This is Agnes of France or Anna. And she's like 15 or something. And even Joniatis, who's writing about all this, thinks that that's, you know, we, today we'd call it creepy, but it was just grotesque. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and he continued to have all these courtesans around and all of that and and wore this hat that was like a pyramid. Anyway, right. Okay. <laughs> Um, he had good qualities too, and we have to stress those. So, and Joniatis admits this that his his administration was was fair, and it cracked down on abuses by officials. So we even know from people in the provinces, um, like Michael Joniatis, this is the historian Nikita's brother in Athens. He thought that Andronicus's governors were like the best, and in later regimes, he would say. Things like, ah, well, we didn't like Andronicus, but could we have some more governors like that? <laughs> Why are you sending us all these people? Um, so he did seem to have a, a kind of just and fair administration, so to his credit. Uh, but otherwise, a lot of damage. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, my my assessment at the time was kind of, because we, we talked about, you know, do you blame Valens for, for losing a battle? But I kind of hold Andronicus responsible to some extent for his own downfall, because I kind of got to the point where I said it would have been better for the Romans, at least if Andronicus had died and his sons had taken over. So there was a sense of it's still a Comnenian regime, even if he sort of terrorized the rest of the aristocracy, right. at least that would have had a sense that um, there's a continuity and the state sort of begins to fall apart very quickly when uh, Isaac Angelos's sort of first attempts to stabilize things fail. And so people, you know, ask, well, what, you know, what's going on with the state and everything? Why is everything falling apart? And my feeling was, what well, as you were saying, he's unpicked what Manuel's done and then he gets himself and his own family blown up. So now exactly. nobody has any legitimacy or any sense of authority. Exactly. And uh, so... It, you know, it's 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 where do we say an emperor is bad when they get overthrown? How, do we blame uh, Maurice for Focus's rise? You know, that's one of those factors in in weighing up someone's reign. And I very much felt Andronicus, had he been more efficient in his <laughs> terror, would have survived, and that would have at least 
given some benefit to the state if assuming his sons were a bit more sane. I don't think he needed to be so murderous or paranoid. Um, he was very popular uh, at the beginning of his reign. And exa you're exactly right. His son, especially his son, Manuel, was also very popular and by all appearances, very effective and decent guy who stood up to his father often and, and counsel and said, no, let's not do that. It's a terrible idea. Let's not do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, you know, again, the system kind of self-corrects when you, when emperors start to do this, they, they get overthrown and, and his, his overthrow was the most bloody and brutal in all of East, well, all of Roman history. I mean, he was literally torn apart bit by bit um, by the by the populace over the course of days. And he was just hanging someone. They'd cut bits off of him. And it was terrible. Yeah. Um, and and, and Coniati says, even though I don't miss him, I didn't like the thought that people can do this to an emperor. That it's a, right. It's yeah. not a good sight for the state that people think this is okay to do. Uh, anyway, yeah. Who is sorry? Yes. No, I'm thinking maybe I should have put him higher on the list. <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's that thing of if the Fourth Crusade sails to Egypt and doesn't come to Constantinople, we wouldn't necessarily connect his yes the bad yes, part yes, of him yes. with the serious consequences. So anyway, that's right. Um. So, who is number five? Number five is Andronicus II, Paleologus. Right. So, okay. this, you won't get any pushback from me, because I, I have not covered this yet. I see. Yes, no, because you, you've reached Fourth Crusade and after. Um, so, this is one of the longest reigning emperors, 1282 to 1328. Mm. Right? That is... Almost 50 years. Um, and, you know, had co-reigned with his father earlier. This is Michael VIII Palaiologos, the one who took back Constantinople from the Latins. So Andronicus is not a bad person. Uh, not at all. Um, he was very, very patient. He had to put up with a lot of... Um, you know, religious zealots, um, and he was very patient with them. He His response to almost every situation was to say, I'm very, very sorry. It's my fault. I take responsibility. <laughs> you know, what can I do to make it better? <laughs> right. He he had he he had mistresses, didn't get along with his wife, whatever. Um, so we, we have to give him all of this. Um he he was politic in the sense that, you know, he could read the room. He knew which way the wind was blowing. So, for example, he immediately terminated his father's persecution of the anti-unionists. So Michael VIII had kind of enforced union with Rome, church union, on his people with some pretty violent persecution in order to stave off more attacks from the West. It was kind of this deal with the papacy, you know, you enforce union, um, there's your papal supremacy on Constantinople, and we will hold, I don't know, Charles of Anjou or whatever, right? We'll keep his leash tight. Um, and that had whole that whole agreement had fallen apart. 
Um, Charles was kind of out of the picture and Andronicus immediately disavowed all of that union, which he had signed in the, you know, as his father's co-emperor. Uh, and, um, and so that made him acceptable to all of his subjects in the way that Michael wasn't. Okay. So what's the problem with Andronicus? Well, in a sense, he was responsible for losing Asia Minor. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but it was his fault. Um, so this is when th th there has been this kind of uh, order in Asia Minor, like a an order of stability. I mean, a kind of balance of power where the Romans are holding on to the northwest corner, you know, what they had gained with the First Crusade, you know, during the First Crusade. And, you know, they have it very well defended. And the Seljuks are kind of keeping order in the interior. And Constantinople and the Seljuks normally have this kind of understanding of, of kind of maintaining the peace. But the Seljuk order had been disrupted and eventually kind of destroyed by the Mongols. And the Mongols created this very weak order in Asia Minor, which allowed a lot of these Turkmen tribes to come in and disrupt things. Um, and they just kind of you know, moved on, kept going west, and began to found all of the emirates that uh, we're familiar with from early Ottoman history, right? Um, like Aydin and Mendesha and, you know, Karaman and so forth. And the Ottomans were one of those. All right. Um, now, these groups are coming in and they're testing the defenses. And unfortunately, our sources here are pretty bad in the sense that, you know, Pajimeris, our main historian, doesn't give us quite the information that we need whereas the Ottoman sources are much, much later and kind of legendary. And you can kind of see vaguely what they were up to, but it's difficult to do a proper analysis. And it, um, Andronicus, he didn't neglect this, right? It's not a case like Constantine X, where he's just not doing his job, but he's doing it very poorly. Um, so here, here are two of the main problems. He's not trusting his commanders because he's very insecure. And so he keeps appointing and then recalling them or deposing them, punishing them, blinding a couple. Um, and so they start to get paranoid, right? So if you're now appointed to deal with the situation there, you're looking over your shoulder all the time. And so some of his commanders just kind of left to run back to the court to prove that they were loyal before they were I don't know, arrested and blinded or whatever. And so he creates the situation where it's impossible, like even if it were militarily possible to fend off the Turkmen tribes, and there's some pretty good reasons to think that it was, um, his policy was the one that that uh, caused that to fail. Um, and then he made the biggest mistake of that whole period, which was to hire this group of Catalan mercenaries to solve the problem. And he should have known better than to do that. That The Romans had had so many bad experiences with hiring Western uh, mercenary companies. They should have known that this would have turned on them. And, he, and, and people did, but he did it anyway. And this was just one of the biggest disasters in East Roman history. They were disloyal. They were greedy. They gobbled up all of his money. They destroyed 
not only Asia Minor and lots of cities there, but then when they moved to Thrace, they attacked him. They moved on, destroyed the areas around Thessaloniki. And eventually they wandered off and conquered Athens from where they continued to terrorize Greece and the Aegean for the next 70 years or something. The Catalans at that time were just the worst. Um, and and so he it made the bad situation worse. Um, and one of his responses to them, which maybe kind of worked, was to basically freeze agriculture in Thrace for a couple of winters to starve them out. And it kind of worked. They had to move on. Nobody wanted them. They were hoping that now oh, people will come out in it. Um, but it just it was just a disaster for Constantinople. They went through some really, really bad times. So for those for mishandling the defense of Asia Minor and losing it, and for the Catalan company um, contract, he's on the list. Mm -hmm. That sounds hard to hard to argue against. <laughs> right. So who is at number four? Isakios the second Angelos. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So. Two, three, and four, it's hard to rank them because they're bad in such different ways. You know, there's a limited number of ways in which you can be good, but there's like an infinite number of ways you can be bad. <laughs> All right. This guy, so we're, this is the sequel to Andronicus, the first Komnenos we were talking about. All right. So he ruled 1185 to 1195. And he actually had a pretty heroic rise to the throne. And, you know, Andronicus sends one of his arrest executioners to his house. And the guy's like, OK, I mean, what a guy got to lose now. And he like cleaves his head open with a sword and then gallops through the city on his horse, waving the bloody sword and calling the people to Hagia Sophia to, you know, mount a resistance. It's like, okay, <laughs> I can work with this material. This is great stuff. Okay. And the people come out. They're sick of Andronicus. They rally behind him. So you have to picture, like, I mean, he's not an emperor at this point, but he's, like, huddling near the altar in a Sophia with, like, thousands of people around him so that soldiers can't get to him without cutting through the crowd. And, like, no emperor really wants to do that. And Anyway, the thousands gather and, okay, very dramatic and all that. But after that, oh, man, okay. This guy is is almost comically incompetent. Like, I, sometimes <laughs> I just want to laugh. Um, okay, how do I, it's hard to even know where to start. So he is active and energetic. Like, he's always going out on campaign and trying to do things is rarely ever successfully. Um, so he's pretty incompetent when he's in charge of things. And he is paranoid and blinds so many people that it becomes like a thing, like, like public opinion was beginning to turn against him because he had blinded so many people for like no good reason and actually, it's, it's one of the reasons why his own brother, Alexis III, you, you know, overthrew him and blinded him. Um, and it was the only person Alexis III blinded. Like, this is, 
this is significant, right? Like, it, I think it was part of the problem. So he, his brother didn't do that because it made so many people angry. So much so that it authorized his own usurpation. Okay. To make matters worse, Isaacios keeps appointing blind generals to lead campaigns. <laughs> like, I, I'm okay. I mean, I, I get it, you know, like, I don't know, disability rights or something or whatever. Like, it's, I don't know what he's thinking here, but they lose battles for the reasons you would expect. Um, also, he it's during his reign that the like the that core territories begin to fall away. Um, well, core territories at any rate, Bulgaria. Um, so what for what seemed to be pretty trivial reasons, like he wasn't willing to make some little concession uh, to this pair of brothers that approached him, um, uh, f- which probably just for a pronoia or something. Um, they raised a rebellion um, that seemed to be a kind of joint project of the Vlachs and the Bulgarians and kind of reconstituted the Bulgarian Empire. And so this is a huge chunk of territory. And not only that, a major preoccupation uh, for uh, Isaacios at a time when he had many, many other problems um, to to deal with. So this is a major loss of territory for no particularly good reason. Um, And to add to all the rest, he lost the fleet. Like he literally lost it in the sense that he sent it to Cyprus and it didn't do anything. And this one of these kind of pirate uh, admirals, this Margaritone, this guy who's like at large in the Mediterranean, just came by and there are all these empty ships. And he's like, I'll take those. Thank you. And he just took them away. So Manuel had like a significant Mediterranean fleet and Isaacius lost that too. In addition to which, he seems to have been a delusional idiot. In the sense that he's the only one of these emperors who actually believed or seems to have believed these nonsense stories about apocalyptic last emperors who will go to Jerusalem and do whatever. Like those, that kind of, for the most part, that stuff was just like theological entertainment, right? It was, I don't know. It's like a rapture movie or something like you watch and then, okay, yeah. But this guy seemed to have actually believed it. In the sense that he made decisions, policy decisions, um, based on prophecies about him being like this glorious emperor who will reconquer everything, whatever. Um, and Paul Magdaleno has actually written about that. Um, I, I personally don't think that hardly anybody believed this stuff um, in in you know the long East Roman history, but he did, and partly based on those beliefs he mishandled the passage of the Third Crusade and specifically the armies of Friedrich Barbarossa. This massive army, by the way. The army that Barbarossa led through the Balkans might have just been the largest army that had been there since, I don't know, Trajan. A huge thing. And I'm no fan of Crusaders. But just like following the Germans' path and just the nonsense that Isaacius was doing and the frustration, like he put obstacles up for the passage of the army and just constantly annoyed them and irritated them and changed his 
you know, his approach to things from week to week without having like a plan. Okay, so you're aggravating them. So what are you going to do? Are you going to go out and defeat them? Or like, what? What's your plan here? There was no plan. So he just badly handled that. There was no reason for it. Barbarossa had no interest in taking Constantinople until he was aggravated to the point of almost no return by Isaac's court. And all he had to do is like ferry them across as quickly as possible. Just get them out. Um, and yeah, yeah oh, it's so bad. So I think that that experience did almost as much to aggravate the Latins against Constantinople as Andronicus's, you know, mass. Well, the massacre of the Latins in 1182. So for all those reasons, Isaacios, two thumbs down. <laughs> so this is the this is the first one where I would attempt to mount some defense. Go um, for it. And I think this is this gets into your question of where does academia meet entertainment? Because I made the moral judgment that Andronicus is accepted by everyone. It seemed to me. Um, of the younger generation as a suitable replacement for Manuel because of his seniority. You know, that, well, if we yeah. if we have to choose amongst ourselves, we'll end up having a civil war. So why don't we accept someone, you know? So he's, and he wants to be emperor, and he then goes around uh, terrorizing people and making poor decisions. Whereas Isaac Angelos, I, I kind of said, when he is standing there the day after the coup has succeeded, he must be thinking... I didn't even want to be emperor right. three days ago. So this is against my will. I've had no training. I've had no prior experience, as far as we know, of being a military commander or a governor in any serious way. So I'm yes. I'm I'm kind to him in that sense that he's he's learning on the job. Um he, I will concede that point. <laughs> that he tries to put Manuel's coalition back together. He tries to he get the Hungarians back on side and then yeah, and yeah. apologize to the Latins and, and so on. Um and uh, <laughs> what yeah, I he does, he does. Yeah. So I mean I suppose I'm I'm kind to him in that in that sense, but um yeah, it, it's the lack of success. So I had a very impassioned listener email me to say i thought you were unkind to isaac angelos because i said ultimately you he kept failing and he said well he was so unlucky you know with the bulgarian revolt and and vranas and and so on um and i said well the the line that comes to mind is um billy zane and titanic you know in the kind of who says a real man makes his own luck in, in a very sort of look how i'm an arrogant person but i kind of said well you have to win a battle you have to defeat the Bulgarians one way or another, or you are just going to keep failing. Um, but I, I suppose, again, the, the population of Constantinople is now kind of harder to manage because Andronicus has seemingly empowered kind of mob bosses. We get this vague sense of things yeah. becoming harder to manage for the elite. So, yeah, I suppose I was sympathetic to Isaac. I certainly didn't make a case that he was a, a good emperor. <laughs> sure so you're right things are harder to manage um uh, under him because you know he d doesn't have that kind of prestige he doesn't come in with the right experience he doesn't have the, the all the connections and he's surrounded by increasingly more dangerous people and and like he's swimming in a in a pool of larger sharks 
the third crusade was just a <laughs> the order of magnitude uh, uh, different from the second um the you know bulgaria breaking away is just not the same as like some dalmatian provinces that or even cyprus like that's right on your doorstep and these are people who you know have you know can and did tell a narrative of their own like independence from the romans and you know end of the period of oppression and so forth um so yeah and and he's a weaker player in the aristocracy he didn't even want to be emperor it's not like he came to power through some coalition of generals or courtiers who would back him once that happened so you're exactly right he has a lot of disadvantages going in um but you know here's the thing you might think okay well you know abdicate and you know give the throne to granas or someone you know can do it um but I I suspect that he wasn't aware of his own limitations, which is why he was taken in by all of these uh, charlatan prophets that were, you know, anyway, uh, he didn't know his limitations. And and that's that at that time, that's a disaster. Yeah. OK, so we're down to the top three. Yeah, they're like I said, between two and four, the order is kind of arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Um, so number three uh, is the son of uh, Isaacios Angelos, and this is Alexios the Fourth Angelos. Yes, this is an easy case to make. Mm -hmm. This is we're in the domain now of straight up treason. Mm -hmm. um, this is a hugely irresponsible um, young aristocrat um, who allowed himself to become a pawn of the people who wanted to divert the Fourth Crusade to Constantinople. And and he willingly allowed that to happen. Not only that, he made he helped to make it happen by giving them all these promises that he knew he couldn't fulfill, uh, but that would get him on the throne. And once there, yeah, whatever, we'll figure it out. Um, so this is a this is the first person on our list who's an actual traitor in the sense of inviting armed aggression against your own people. Uh, in order to personally benefit from it without having a plan or the ability to handle that situation, which is in fact exactly what we see when he um, gets put on the throne by the Crusaders in 1203 and is completely unable to either fulfill his promises to them or manage his own people, perhaps, for example, in leading a resistance to them or what, or doing anything mm. Um, and so uh, in terms of the negative consequences, um, you know, in terms of inflicting sheer negative consequences on his own uh, people, this is this one is the worst. Like of all of them, he's the worst. The only reason I didn't put him at number one is because I'm not entirely sure that he was in control of what he was doing. I think he was a pawn uh, of the, you know, the the clique, um, you know, marshals of champagne and people like that, um, who were following in a long tradition, you know, uh, Norman tradition, et cetera, of just using puppet Romans to um, disguise what they were actually up to. So this is just a pretext. Um, oh, we, do we have a Roman we can put on the throne? Yeah, okay, well, get this guy. Um, so there had been others like him before who were treated as historical footnotes. This is one of those footnotes that jumped into the main text. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't, can't argue with you. It's, uh, 
disastrous. And it seemed like if he hadn't been overthrown, he might have invited Latins in to start garrisoning the city in order to protect himself. So the city mm. might have been sacked peacefully. Eventually, the Latins would have just occupied Vlachernae and then slowly been invited further into the city, started taking stuff themselves. I mean, it could have yeah. it could have turned into some kind of horrific street fighting incident anyway. So there was no there was no good end to that. Um nobody wanted him as emperor. No one wanted his blind father to come back and be emperor. Nobody wanted any of this. Mm-hmm. Um anyway. Um yeah. This is this is something that we'll talk about more. We talk about the Fourth Crusade in yes. uh, other episodes. Absolutely. Yeah. Sad, sad news. So we're down to number two. All right. This is a tricky case. This is Michael the Seventh Dukas, the son of Constantine the Tenth Dukas. Okay. Now, I should say that we have excluded minors from this list. Obviously, yes. we're not going to put children on this list and but the thing is that michael the seventh was an adult during his reign except that for all intents and purposes he wasn't he was just treated as a child by everyone and And i think this uh, is one of these guys who probably didn't even want to be emperor and apologies for jumping in just to remind people while romanos theoyenes is off at manzikert this is who is back home with romanos's wife his mother in the capital yes so he is the son of Constantine the Tenth Dukas. He had been kind of uh, not destined for the throne, but designated by his father for the throne. Eventually, um, he's a complete non-entity. Um, there's very little that one can even say about him uh, because he was just basically being handled by people at his court. So when we're talking about him, we're really talking about those people. So this is the Dukas faction, um, especially his uncle Ioannis Dukas, um, uh, who's you know very power- the Caesar, Caesar, very powerful guy at the court. The only thing we really know about Michael VII is that Salas had taught him how to write poems, and none of which survive. <laughs> so we can't even judge him on that. Okay, so the this regime um, took a number of disastrous decisions um, that they knew would be bad for the sort of polity as a whole, um, but were necessary to secure their own ascendancy in the political system. And specifically, this is one of the worst decisions ever made in the whole of East Roman history which is a decision to wage a war against Romanos de Ogenis, a civil war right after the defeat at Manzikert, right? Because the defeat at Manzikert was not itself like um, a military catastrophe in the sense of losing armies and soldiers that, that sort of cripples you militarily. It was not. Nor were the terms of it that bad. As far as we can understand them, the ter- you know, Arpastan gave very generous terms. Like, I think he wanted, like, give me Vaspura Khan, one of these Armenian principalities in the East, uh, pay me some money. Maybe there was a marriage alliance or something like that. And it looked like, okay, you know, maybe may- it was survivable. But 
he was then forced to fight this civil war against the Dukas faction, and that just tore everything apart. Not only did it tear apart the agreement, like which which might have preserved some kind of stability and you know Roman control over Asia Minor, but it diverted all of the forces available at the time into a civil war and not to fight against the Turkmen that started pouring in uh, when the, you know, apparently there were no longer any defenses, the Romans weren't keeping any agreement with the Sultan and whatever. Um, So this was just a disaster. And it was that civil war in the aftermath of Manzikert um, that um, cost the Romans Asia Minor. Um, uh, All of it, Um, you know, as your audience knows, Alexius Komnenos and in the in the uh, in the First Crusade, they managed to win back a, a good part of the Western um, uh, lands uh, afterwards. But it was during the seventies, ten seventies, that Asia Minor is lost. And as it's being lost, the regime continues to play this dirty politics. In the following sense, um, and, and this is something I'm not entirely sure about, but it's not as if the Romans didn't have any armies. They apparently had pretty serious armies, but in the Balkans. Now, there was a strategic reason to keep them in the Balkans, even while you're losing Asia Minor. Specifically, you don't know when the Normans are going to invade. They were pretty sure that Robert Giscard was going to invade. So you need to have some defense forces there. There had just been another sort of Bulgarian or Bulgarian wannabe uprising. And so they had to put that down and did. So there were reasons to not, you know, strip the Balkans of armies in order to send them off and reclaim or pacify Asia Minor in the aftermath of the Civil War. But they didn't use any of those armies, right? And my suspicion is that the Dukas Dukas family did not want any of the Servrienios, Vasilakis, you know, Tarhaniotis types. So these Balkan-based, you know, generals, you know, some of them were you know, pretty badasses. They didn't want them either coming through Constantinople or to give them the, you know, opportunity to save Asia Minor and then rebel against the regime. So they were using these scrap forces, just cobbling together these weird little armies and sending them off one after another into Asia Minor all of which were defeated. And then they make, you know, the same ultimate disastrous decision we talked about in the case of Andronicus II, which is to hire mercenaries to do it, in this case, Normans. They they knew, they, they must have known what that would have done. So the Normans immediately set about starting, you know, creating their own little state there too. Another disaster. So this regime ended... The history of Roman Asia Minor, which went back to uh, over a thousand years, right? Um, and and for that, I, I don't know they get put up here in second place. Yeah, I suppose the only pushback is that it's a it's a regime rather than an individual. Mm-hmm. We assume we assume Michael is not making all these decisions himself. That's right. In fact, there was a moment when, during the reign of Romanos Ioannis, when um, um, Michael's mother wants to proclaim Romanos emperor, and the Dukas family is like balking at that. 
And the Varangian guards were like, well, I, like they were caught in a bind here. Like, what do we do? Our job is to protect the emperor. The emperor is Michael VII, like nominally. And Michael comes out and says, no, no, it's okay, guys. It's okay. He can be emperor. Like, I'm like, I don't want to deal with this stuff. You do it. So it's possible that this guy's like, you know, complete non it. Yeah, you know, he's happy writing his poems. Um, he also got to marry uh, a very, very beautiful um, Georgian princess, uh, Maria. She's called of Alania. She's not from Alania. She's Georgian. Um, like a famous beauty of the time. You know, and even when he was deposed, even when he was deposed after so many civil wars, nobody cared enough about him to even blind him or even confine him in a monastery. <laughs> they just made him a bishop. <laughs> and Ataliati says, yeah, he was kind of fit to be a bishop. They're like Nobody cared about him. Um, mm. So we're not blaming this guy. He's just in the wrong place. Mm. Yeah. I don't think but... he could have even he could have even have done anything about this. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, that regime, terrible. Yeah, no, well, that's pretty, that's pretty unarguable. Uh, which brings us to number one. All I'm right. Looking, I'm looking at my list of uh, potential candidates. Okay. No. All right. I, Who have I'm we got? Not, I'm not sure this guy's on your list. Ah. But he's one of the few that infuriated me. In fact, no. He's the only one who infuriated me when I was going through the sources and writing the history of his activities. Just drove me mad. This is Ioannis the Sixth Catacuzinos. Right. John the okay. Sixth Catacuzinus. All right. So he's a 14th century guy, 1347 to 1354. All right. Though he lived for a very long time after that. Uh, he lived, I think, into the 1390s. He was like in his late 80s and as a monk with the name of Yoasaf. But he never, he was always like in politics after he abdicated. He abdicated in 1354 uh, because his reign is a disaster. Now, by the mid 14th century, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. So there's not, there's much less left, but we're judging these guys in, you're right, in the framework that they were operating in, yeah. right? Um, so he, um, he came to power by this very, very wealthy guy, um, lots and lots of military experience, um, very good diplomat, uh, claimed he even knew Italian and Turkish, um, himself. Oh, by the way, later as a monk, he wrote a massive history of his times and especially of his reign which is in very uh flowing easy to read at it greek like it, it's really good prose it's not like spectacular literary style but if you want to be like if you want to read something that's comprehensible and lucid and very very clear and precise he's he's a great historian for that okay and so you're not only having to contend with himself as emperor, but also with himself as historian. Mm. Okay. So he did the worst thing. So we're also in the area of treason here. He came to power uh, through a civil war that basically he instigated. Um, there was a regency 
that he was part of to handle um, the state um, while the heir to the throne was a minor. Uh, this is Ioannis V, Paleologos. Um, and Ioannis V, you know, had a regency which consisted of his mother, the patriarch, and Katakuzinos. And it's not exactly clear how it got started, but he basically went to war against the other members of the regency um, in order to, well, and this is the thing, he kept claiming that he's doing this for the heir, not for himself. All right. And no, nobody wanted it. Like, this, this is a key thing to remember. It's not like there was some, you know, swelling of support for Katakuzinos. He had some aristocratic support. He had some soldiers. But this, at this one time, he was just down to 500 men. And he makes a deal with Serbia um, to help him. This is Stefan Dushan. Is a, Serbia's a rising power at this time. And he knew exactly what the Serbians were going to do because Dushan told him, which was to take basically half the empire. And in exchange for support to gain the throne in Constantinople, he said, okay. And that is exactly what happened. What happened? Exactly what Dushan told him would happen. He took all of Macedonia and Greece. All right. So these are predictable losses to Serbia that are caused by this guy's ambition. Okay, if that isn't bad enough, he's the guy who introduces Turks into the Balkans to use as mercenaries, right? And he introduces them in fairly large numbers in order to fight his civil wars, because like I said, there wasn't that much support for him among Romans, so he had to keep hiring foreign help, and the Turks had plenty to give. Mm. But the thing is that the Turkish soldiers weren't just content to, you know be hired for a season and then go back. But often they just stayed. Now, no, this looks good. Or they went out on raids of their own, like freelancing on the side, right? And to make matters worse, like I'll, I'll just give you a sense of how, um, how symbolically perverse this was. There was money being collected at this time to repair Hagia Sophia, which had been damaged and the dome had been damaged in an earthquake. And like all of these Christian people were sending money, and in particular, there's some money that came from Rus or Russia, Muscovy, and so forth. And it was believed that, and I, I believe this, that Katakuzinos was using this money to pay for his Turkish mercenaries um, instead of repairing Hagia Sophia. Um, so basically, he's fighting a war to establish himself in Constantinople while turning the rest of the empire over to Serbs and Turks to fight it out. And from that point on, like for the last century, East Roman history is just Turks fighting it out with like Serbs, Bulgarians, you know, whatever, crusaders who show up, whatever. Um, okay. To make matters worse, even when he gains the capital, he's still indecisive about establishing his own dynasty and displacing the Paleologi. He keeps claiming that he's doing all of this for the Paleologi, all of whom are opposed to him, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like he he he's wishy-washy about this all the way to the end. And in the end, he decides, okay, I'm going to make my son emperor and I'm going to break with the Paleologi somewhat, which just results in more civil wars. Okay, it's it's a disaster. He creates this precedent that perpetuates civil wars. 
Um, I, I really like this. Can I use profanity on the podcast? Yeah, sure. This this motherfucker drove me insane <laughs> because I'm also reading his history at the same time, and it's so distorted. Mm. It's so it's, anyway. You 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 want to strangle him because it's also very nicely written. So it's kind of like this totally love hate relationship. Anyway, so here's one of the ways in which he's messed with our heads ever since. He claims that in these civil wars, he was supported by, well, I'm going to put it in modern terms, by like the upper class, the aristocracy, and his enemies were supported by like the lower classes, you know, from peasants to, you know, sailors and dock workers and whatever. And based on that, modern is, you can imagine what like Marxist or Marxist adjacent historians in the 20th century did with that. They created this whole narrative of class conflict. Like, here, we got it. We found it. Finally, we found explicit class conflict that we can now point to and right, make, make this a Marxist story. And it's totally not that. He, basically, all he's saying is that his supporters were the better type and his enemies were supported by the worst type. First of all, it's not true. We can mm. We can fact check this like all the way down, and it's just totally not true. He was supported by a, a small circle of aristocrats, yes. But the vast majority of the upper classes supported the Paleologi regime, uh, as did the vast majority of Romans in every social class. It's just like nobody liked him. But, you know, he turned this into this whole narrative, uh, which created... Are you familiar with the Zealots of Thessaloniki? It's a story I've heard, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just... It's largely fiction. Mm. It's, it's not true at all. Um, yes, there was this. It was like a political party in Thessaloniki that were called the Zealots. They had no platform of socioeconomic grievances or change. Um, they were led by, you know, the the usual types. Um, they, and they had no control over the people of Thessaloniki. Like, it's just anyway. But he's turned it into this like. The, you know, savage, unwashed masses were coming for my guys who were like proper gentlemen. And he's like mm. this conceited asshole. Anyway, <laughs> um, so fortunately, that whole story has kind of been dismantled, too. Uh, so we know that this is him just, you know, just being uh, having a class bias. Um, and so this is a guy who's the connections here are very, very clear. In fact, even in his own work, his own ambition um, led to um, foreign gains. Uh, Serbia, he introduces the Turks, uh, the Turkish inroads in the Balkans and their growing presence after that, largely due to him. All right. Interesting, he's an interesting personality. Like he's not a, he's not a monster in the sort of conventional, like the kind of Andronicus the first or even Justinian the second kind of way. Like not that. He's, he's in fact kind of weak and indecisive when it comes to taking charge of things all the time. But when it comes to selling out, you know, his own country for his own gain, he, ah, anyway, frustration. So that's my number one. Very good. And I, there's a very consistent through line, I'd say, in your choices in terms of the damage done to the state, yeah. the damage done in terms of losses of territory or, or just loss of position. Which is, yeah, he's a very consistent with with the with your book, really. I would say, 
in terms of you know the the office of emperor if you aren't the king it's not your it's not your territory to deal with as you desire it is the common uh, ownership of of everyone so when you act selfishly you are being a bad emperor right this isn't about their individual virtues necessarily or you know whether they play the part it's you know it's it's a results oriented position um and you know their own people you know kind of issued their verdict in in deposing a lot of these guys or killing them um or writing about them afterwards in very negative terms uh so yeah the the roman system does self correct a little bit after these people like the you know a focus is followed by an heraclius right whatever um uh but when you're the wrong guy at the wrong time and and you can cause incredible damage that's that's the the levers of power make small differences they amplify them and so you 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 end up doing a tremendous amount of damage mm. uh, and this is one of the kind of even systemic weaknesses of the whole system that in a weak moment a bad person can just blow the whole thing up yeah fantastic very good top 10 again no one will have predicted that and uh there, there will be feedback so can i run through the people i wrote down oh, yes. uh, for a very brief comment so i wrote down some people who i would never make a top 10 list but i their historical reputation arcadius and theodosius ii not bad empress but just disinterested would that be would that be fair? I mean, they allowed better men to make decisions for them, maybe. Exactly. Arcadius called the jellyfish <laughs> by one author of his time. Yes, um, they were non-entities, but they, well, Arcadius cycled through a number of them. Uh, but ultimately, so this was a, 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 Arcadius lived through some rough times. Um, ultimately, the system settled into a stable equilibrium and they found the right people. Um, who who put the Eastern Empire on very, very good foundations for the 5th century, specifically the political class types like Prefect Anthemius and so on. Um, so in the end, those two people wisely stepped back and let their betters do the work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, amusingly, I thought Michael III it's, there's probably no truth in the story, but the idea that you would elevate a friend of yours to be emperor and then your friend kill you, that I just thought, well, if there's any truth in that, that would be bad. That would be bad emperorship. But I cannot explain. Be... I can't explain no. that soap opera. <laughs> but Michael III has been successfully rehabilitated, in my view. If, like, if you look at the actual record, he's, mm. he's actually a pretty good emperor, or at least... Um, he's presiding over an administration that does the right things, but that business was, ugh, I can't understand it. Um, fortunately, um, his murderer and successor is also a pretty good emperor. So, you know, no harm done if you're watching things from street level. So that was Basil the first, I should have said, uh, we see yes. in theory, uh, killed his friend anyway. Um, so more seriously, maybe these these last three, Basiliscus. Uh, so this is the start of the podcast. Right. Manages to I forget maneuver Zeno out of palace, kicks him out. He runs to Isoria, 
he then makes one terrible decision after another, after another, after another, and Zeno comes back. Yes. I mean, I suppose brevity is why he's not making the list. Yeah, so this is a few months. And also, he received such immediate and dramatic pushback to his decisions that ultimately he had very little impact. He he immediately, he immediately rescinded those orders. <laughs> Basiliscus did more damage before he was emperor as the admiral sent to take North Africa. Yes. Um, and it's amazing that he managed to show his face in public again after that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I just found his historical impact to be too small. I thought about him, but eh. Yeah, I mean, people will have to read the book to remind themselves, but his career is astonishing. You would think this is made up to embarrass someone, isn't it? Because yeah. yeah. everything he does, he does wrong. Um, Nicky the I, so takes over from Irene, seems like actually a very competent and interesting emperor, but manages to get himself ambushed, killed, an army devastated when he could, in theory, have, have ended Bulgaria, maybe, yes. or seriously hampered Bulgaria. He could have. Now, it's interesting you should mention him because that defeat is the reason why I didn't put him on the top 10 list. Okay. But it wouldn't have been uh, enough to, it's not enough to, for me to put him on the uh, worst 10 uh, because his reorganization of the administration and the finances was so um, fundamental for the upward trajectories that both the state and the Roman economy took after that. Um, that you know, I th I think he's, I think he's someone who did a lot of good, despite that defeat. That's an embarrassing defeat, and for the life of me, I can't understand why he didn't sit post centuries in the mm. like. It, that, I don't get it. Um, it, but the narratives also don't make sense. Like, I mean, armies don't just do that kind of thing. I don't know how that defeat happened, but you know, it is, it is debited to him. So, um, yeah, but otherwise I, I think he's, he was a very efficient and even wise administrator. It's one of those where I, I'm making very subjective judgments where I might say, well, Valence went into battle with a good army. These things happen. Whereas yeah. Nicky Forrest has to be held responsible for the incompetence of, you know, whatever. But that, as I say, that's so subjective and that's based on. Yeah. Based on very little real knowledge. I, I, yeah, but you're right. I think what went wrong with Valens wasn't his it, stuff that happens in the thick of battle. What went wrong with Nicky Forrest was something that a general could, I think, have prevented. So the last one is one that. I held on to, I suspect erroneously for a long time, and your book, this was the way you corrected this idea, which is Justin II. Mm. So it takes over from Justinian. Justinian has, for all his faults, seemingly been very correct in saying it's worth paying for peace with Persia. It's worth paying a big price because there's no benefit to war with Persia. And Justin II restarts the war immediately in a kind of, this is how I'll win legitimacy and military success and so on. And I always looked at that and thought that was completely unnecessary and began, you know, the process by which we get to 
uh, the rise of Islam and everything else. Now, I would, again, not to jump into discussing your whole book, but I think you make a case that probably that individual decision is much less important than the overall world geostrategic situation that probably would have tipped into another war anyway. Would that be fair? Yeah, and he's he's not just recklessly starting wars, though you can see it that way in retrospect. Um, he was actually building alliances that were quite um, far-reaching. Um, and in other words, it, it was one of those kinds of Justinianic things where you're like, um, you're taking a short-term risk and incurring damage now in order to build something bigger later that will uh, that that has a reasonable chance of positioning you better later on and i think he was trying to do that he, he, i don't think he was as good at as justinian at doing it um but not all of the parts of his plan you know collapsed i mean the alliances with the turks uh were major um and anyway like his immediate losses were also not as great um, as as has been made out. Like you can reach a more balanced understanding of what he's doing. You know, plus at some point during his reign, he begins to suffer from a debilitating mental illness that is difficult to diagnose, but we have very, very detailed descriptions of it. Um, and and he, he, so he had, you know, lucid moments and dark moments and he would go into the, and even during those moments, he had the um, both the you know the wisdom and the, the perspicacity to realize that he needed to appoint someone to to handle things, and and he did someone who was you know not bad, um, and he's presented sympathetically in the tradition for this. So he's not a good emperor, you know, but he's not a terrible one either. So for those reasons, I I didn't put him on the list. Yeah. And I don't think you would or or I would, but could someone make a case for Justinian being on this list? <laughs> See, Justinian, yes, of course, people have. I mean, at serious, like legit historians of the sixth century have written about it in a way that makes him the bad guy. Uh, no doubt about it. Um, you can do that. Um, I'm... I'm too, I don't know what the word is. I'm, I, I guess I'm too cautious about putting him into that kind of narrative. Justinian's faults were enormous and monstrous, but also like his, I don't want to say virtues. I don't think the guy had any virtues, but like also the positive things that he did and his capability. It's just like, um, how should I put it? Maybe the yardstick that we have isn't like big enough for either of. Yeah, he did some of the worst things, but I wouldn't necessarily. I don't know. It's difficult. See, look. Okay, let me let me um. So, one of the reasons why he's put into this category sometimes is for the religious persecutions, right? His hostility to like, Hellenism or paganism, right? Whatever his at, on and off persecution of anti-Chalcedonians and just like every minority and homosexuals and like you name it. And if that were a modern ruler, yes, shoot him into the sun, like absolutely. 
I'm not entirely sure that he was out of entirely out of step with the values of his society, though, about these things. Like it's it's hard call. Like anyway. Um, I find it, this is where like the kind of cultural relativism uh, messes with my mind. Mm. Like whose standards am I using here, mm. right? Um, anyway, uh, a lot of his legal reforms make sense. You know, Procopius says they were used for corrupt reasons, but yeah. Um, he knew how to find people of talent and delegate real authority to them. This is how he got the corpus done. This is how he built Hagia Sophia. This is how he got North Africa and Italy back, right? Like he was, he had a lot of talented men around him um, whom he picked not because of their pedigrees, not, not because of aristocratic background. Theodora, for that matter, like that's a ballsy decision, like, you know, that it, with political cost. But he like he knew who he wanted. And like I, I, that's, you know, that is um, an attribute that um, was responsible for like the successes of the reign of Justinian, the lasting successes. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I don't obviously don't like the guy, um, but he certainly worked hard. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, by his lights, he was doing the right thing. And at the end of his reign, he actually wrapped a lot of this stuff up. Like all the wars, he wrapped them up. He left his successor with a like it was with a bow tie on it. Mm. Um, so, you know, anyway, but other decisions that he made were very, very costly. Um, so disbanding the um, presental armies and sending them to Armenia, North Africa and Italy this left the Balkans and Constantinople relatively undefended for like when the Avars and so forth showed up. So that was a long-term strategically very costly. So you see where I'm getting at, like there's so many pluses and minuses that you're constantly having to juggle that I don't feel comfortable putting him into one or the other category. No, I think that's fair. I, I what, what I found so interesting, because although I knew the outline of Byzantine history before I started I really knew none of the detail and one of the things long term I found so surprising is how unideological Byzantine history is you know you, you as a, as someone knowing nothing you think okay well here comes along this emperor and he wants to change the whole world and and make it this and he succeeds and he fails and this emperor wants to change you know which is sort of how we imagine the past sometimes this you know Henry VIII wants to right. change everything and so many Byzantine emperors either didn't seem to have idea, you know, they were happy with the world as it was for them, or they didn't have the opportunity. Their whole reign is there's a Bulgarian invasion. Now there's an Arab invasion. I don't really have room, you know, to have a world changing ideology. And Justinian really stood out to me as someone yes. who would follow a line of belief, even when people are dying yes in, in your wars or in plagues and you just go no i'm i'm going to carry on with what i think is right and that's just struck me as very unusual and at times slightly monstrous yes. so yeah you're exactly right that is very very well put um my co-author marion cruz put it to me once like um that justinian didn't hesitate to break something that was working well in order to make it work better mm. interesting yeah um 
And anyway, but you're exactly right. Um, there are moments when you can see emperors toying with policies that you can interpret ideologically. It's not very common, but you can, like, for example, in the 10th century, when they go on and on and on about protecting the weak against the powerful, eh, that's not a neutral, you know, that's not just policy. That's a moral stance that you're taking. Um, and there's a reason why they were taking that stance. Um, Justinian also, for example, uh, passed issued many laws that um, improved the financial position of women, like in, um, you know, inheritances, for example, or legal rights. Um, today, that would be considered ideological if you did it. I don't think anybody saw it that way then, really, um, because, you know, he's kind of tinkering with this and that, and emperors kind of tinker with this and that. But there you go. Like, that's a thing. He did that um, with lasting consequences. Right. Hmm. So, yeah. So final question then on right. worst emperors. It would be when people think worst Roman emperors, I think they think uh, Caligula, Nero, Commodus, Elagabalus. This guy tried to change the state religion. This guy tried to rename the city. This guy tried to make a horse a senator. All these silly stories, but we don't see that in the in the top ten you've got. There were people who were excessively cruel or, or excessively foolish, but we don't see anyone going. We're going to become Muslims tomorrow, or we're going to go back to. I mean, we didn't cover Julian. I suppose there's there's one attempt to, to change Christianity, but generally speaking there aren't any mad monstrous people here now is there something about byzantium that pushes people like that out or is that a question of historiography that those those earlier emperors weren't quite as bad as we think yeah well so so what we call the byzantine period is just a continuation of the earlier roman period and they had learned a lot of the lessons uh by then um and um, so is something like a Caligula is unique in any context. Like there weren't even many early Roman emperors who were like that. Mm. Um, Caligula was kind of basically just trolling the system, you know, for fun, I think. Mm. Um, I'm not even sure that Caligula was even thinking about like, am I secure as an emperor? Like, <laughs> mm. Um but you're right. So the emperors in our period generally avoid um, loud and flashy changes that their subjects will see as disruptive. Even Constantine, who's like the first to come out as a Christian, he does only that, basically. Like he comes out as like, yeah, I kind of like that group. And, you know, I'll go talk to their bishops. It's not... You know, but look, there's me as Apollo, so don't worry, right? Even Theodosius, who says, now you all have to be Christians, he, he basically whispers it. Mm -hmm. It's like Francis Saloniki. He says, well, okay, so the religion of the Roman people is now going to be, you know, with this bishop and that bishop and that bishop, and okay, like, okay, like, <laughs> that's it. Like, he doesn't stipulate any penalties necessarily for what happens if you don't, like, and then he just kind of quietly puts people in positions that, you know, but there's no like, you you could have lived through that and not noticed, mm. right? 
So they definitely go for a more gradualist approach, um, uh, certainly for religion. Like you mentioned basiliscus, like look at what happened there, right? Um, and they had learned the lessons of what happens when you're a Caligula or an Elagabalus mm. or a Commodus. Like they, that was all in their rearview mirror. So they, they knew. Yeah, I need, and it made me wonder if the. Uh if you're in rome and your armies are so far away you kind of get mad ideas where in constantinople particularly you know in later centuries you're much more aware of your proximity to constituents who can undo you so you you know you're not going to, to anger them if you have any sense but it sorry I, I just also i think of um when you read about imperial ceremonies you know if if you take what constantine Right. If you have to go through such elaborate rituals and have the patience and the discipline to go through that, if you then say, I'm going to be a mad person and do things differently, you're very quickly going to run into a system that has no room for that. You know, that you, right. you're trampling over the way things are done. So to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ritual system basically guarantees you a, you know, uh, a, a middle ground where you can just kind of perform the role and be safe without doing anything radical or disturbing anybody. It's like, just go through those motions and you'll be perceived as okay. I don't think that emperors did that all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for example, if you've read the treatises on, on Imperial expeditions, um, actually, there are arguments that have been made that those are like so burdened down with like I don't know, a thousand camels and boxes full of books and whatever that it's an attempt by the courtiers who are writing these things to make sure no emperor ever goes on campaign. <laughs> <laughs> right. But there's no way that like Basel II is running around Bulgaria with, with I don't know, 17 silk footstools and no. no. Yeah. Um, um, so the ritual system is you know, one of these options that they have, but you're right. It kind of, it's a, it's a mask that you wear that makes you look kind of, you know, at least median level presentable. Mm. And there are some emperors that I think did, did very little more than that. And you're safe so long as the times are normal. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But all emperors, even in Rome, had constituencies that they need to appeal that they needed to appeal like always there's always you know there's always someone yeah and there are always daggers behind a curtain yes absolutely thank you so much for your top 10 worst emperors that fantastic list you're very you're very welcome robin and we should we should thank these emperors for stepping forward and taking the bullet <laughs> okay Yes, um, absolutely. Yes, uh, it's, it was a lot of fun to to talk about them with you this way, and uh, you know, I again, I think that they need to all be looked at on a case by case basis, and you know, we shouldn't be too afraid of saying, you know, this is a period when things aren't going well, and this is an emperor who's not doing things well. Uh, but also, as with all science, we should always be open to someone persuading us otherwise, and I'm open to the rehabilitation of all of these people. Very good. Except Katakuzinos. <laughs> Thank All you right, so Robin. much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you again to Professor Caldellis. I have now read an advanced copy of his new book, which is predictably 
fantastic, and I will be talking to him at length about it. Um, I will also be including some listener questions, so if you are outraged by his choices of best or worst emperors, uh, you may have the chance to make your case in a few weeks' time. I was interviewed recently by the In Bed by Nine podcast, uh, two dads who interview content creators about their work-life balance and how they generate interest in their side hustle or, in my case, full-time job. So if you want to know more about that side of the show, check out In Bed by Nine with Jeremy and Alex wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in modern European history, then you have to be on top of the French Revolution. So where better to learn about guillotines and gendarmes than with Grey History, the French Revolution podcast. As that name implies, history is never black and white, and it doesn't get more complicated, compelling and consequential than the French Revolution. William Clark is taking his time to pass the sources and reach his own conclusions, so check out Grey History, the French Revolution, wherever good podcasts are available, or check out greyhistory.com. <laughs>